Hello, and welcome to Farmers Capital Conversations. I'm your host, Casey Silveria. This podcast aims to expand your social, intellectual, and economic capital. Investing on and off the farm is hard enough. Here, we will provide insightful stories and resources to help out. Full transparency, this is our shameless way for you to like us and hopes you partner with us down the road. Lastly, there are no ads here. All I ask is you enjoy and share if you find value. Now, on to the episode. You can make good returns while doing good. You just have to be intentional and creative and be in the community. That's I would say that's the most important thing is when you know your community and you have intentions of doing good, oftentimes it pays back itself tenfold because of that intentionality and because you, you know what issues are, are the, the communities you know, facing, you know who's making those solutions and you're just acting as a conduit with your portfolio. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show, Farming for Passive Income. I am your host, Casey Silveria. Today, we are joined by Jordan De Silva. Jordan De Silva is a CEO of Web City Properties, a Dallas-based real estate investment firm started by his father in 2005. Since taking over in 2020, Jordan has expanded the firm's scope from single-family rentals to multifamily and even residential properties. So he now has a portfolio of $40 million in assets, quite a bit. Nice work, Jordan. And he is now leading acquisitions for numerous single family and multifamily properties and pursuing new investment opportunities like co-warehousing and a few others. He is a firm believer in social impact. He has founded a nonprofit to address systemic community issues and partners with various local organizations. He is also a member of several leadership and entrepreneur initiatives locally in Dallas. So Jordan, excited to have you show. Welcome. Well, I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Casey, for having me on. And uh, it's been an exciting journey, no doubt. And uh, great to be on. I can't wait to talk. Yeah, it's great. And I love that you're from Dallas. You know, we keep hearing all of these things about Texas is blowing up. Austin is the new place to move. People from Boise, where I'm sitting right now, Boise was the hot market a couple of years ago. And I think now it's like Austin, but Texas in general, hearing so many good things in there. And I'm really excited to have someone on professionally in the state you are operating in. So excited to hear your perspective today. Yeah. And I can just kind of give a, a quick history of, of myself and our firm. And, you know, really all the credit goes to my dad and I'm just continuing the legacy, which I think is, you know, a great story of, of how entrepreneurship should work in, in, in the U.S. So my dad, immigrant from, from India, came over to this country with, you know, he really, and it's, it's crazy to think about that, you know, you can grow up in India, but still you, you can see from afar the opportunity in America. And he had that American dream, you know, at a young age in India, and he was able to accomplish it by coming over here. He, he started a manufacturing business, was always an entrepreneurial person, but soon realized, as many of us do, that real estate was the way to build generational wealth. And so he quickly pivoted into buying apartments, uh, mobile home parks. And his thesis was always going where nobody else wanted to go. He would be the one willing mm. to work harder than everybody else, go to places that people were scared to walk into. Um, and so he, he really imp implanted that mindset in, in myself and in our firm. Uh, eventually moved from California where he was investing into Texas and Dallas um, and in 2005 started a company where he would buy single family homes in lower income areas, fix them up and then sell or finance them to buyers who couldn't get conventional loans. And that was of course, right. Really after, after 2008 was when it really picked up 
And so he was very much downside protected by, by seller financing and just carrying the note. So a great mm. business model that was unique and also provided access to home ownership to a lot of people who wouldn't have been able to access it otherwise. So, you know, kind of a roundabout way of, of being socially impactful through real estate while making a great return. And so our businesses always continue to do that, you know, over the course of the last decade, we kind of switched more from the note business into acquiring long-term rentals. And then unfortunately, when he passed away in 2020 and I took over, it was, okay, now how do we scale the business? Um, I'm young, I'm aggressive, and I'm, I have the energy to to take on that risk now. So it was about, I'm going to I'm gonna figure out the, the best model for scale. And multifamily happened to be that model. And we started doing that in 2021, late 21, early 22. Uh, bought our first 12 unit last year, Koji Pete on a 96 unit in Waco, Texas as well. And then we're continuing to look for deals. Obviously, it's it's an interesting market. Dallas is highly competitive because of all the factors that that make it what Dallas is and, and inspire population growth, inspire rent growth, the entrepreneurial spirit of Texas as a whole. Um, but yeah, we're, we're still grinding, still buying single family, multifamily, and doing it in a way where we provide social impact by investing in areas that are underserved, managing properties in the area, doing construction management, and doing it all in a way that values the community that we're in and, and seeks to invest in it through our real estate investments, but through our participation in the community as well. I love that. And I, lo- I love your perspective from a foundational view that you're you're always trying to improve the community, whether it's relationships or through real estate. We, we keep hearing these numbers like the US is, I don't know, 10 million homes underdeveloped for housing. And I don't know, is that pretty typical as far as the undersupply in Dallas as well? Yeah, Dallas has a, a systemic issue of undersupply in housing. And a lot of that's related to the fact of, of zoning, right? Most of the, of the properties, there's a huge majority of properties in Dallas that are single family zone versus multifamily and other things. There's not, there's not a lot of mix of housing either. Not a lot of duplexes, triplexes, mm. you know, eight plexes. There's not a lot of that, not a lot of townhomes. So the lack of housing mix is a major issue in Dallas that, you know, as we somewhat try to adventure into development, eventually, I think in our long-term trajectory of our company, we will try to address. But I think that's why multifamily tends to be such a valuable asset here in Dallas because of the limited supply of, of multifamily zoned housing to begin with. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I know, I think that's, that's certainly an issue, but we're able to address that issue also through, you know, doing what we can now with single family assets and multifamily. So uh, having control of both housing supplies, being in the market, we can kind of see what the, what the trends are. And I think having both, it gives us a good mix. But like I said earlier, I think the more multifamily you can get, the faster you can scale and the greater impact you can have. Yeah. For sure. And that's interesting that unit mix and zoning is an issue in Dallas. You know, I've heard that Dallas is pretty un, unrestricted for the most part um, in, you know, development, like you can, can or can't build certain types of assets on certain properties. But what is just from, I, I'm not sure about Dallas really, but what is, what are the restrictions there? Like, can you turn a single family into a multifamily pretty quickly or is it a long-term process? No, it is, it is a extremely difficult to do in Dallas. Now Mm -hmm. I should preface this to say, if you're a California person, you have it way worse than us in Dallas. So Texas relative to the rest of the, of the, of the country is not 
too difficult, but you're not going to have success changing a single family property to multifamily unless you have some very specific comparables in that exact neighborhood. So for instance, I I had two single family lots. One was 0.3 of an acre, which could apply for more density. The average lot sizes are, you know, more like, you know, 0.15 acres, um, 0.10. So this was 0.30 and I wanted to build Mm -hmm. a fourplex on that property, provide more access to housing in a historically undersupplied area. And I was shot down swiftly by by the community. And and it's just, it's just how it is. Zoning is difficult to change, especially when you have, I think the narrative that, well, people in the area, they want their neighborhood to be similar. They don't want anything that's out of the ordinary. Whereas I think other parts of Texas, Houston is a great example where that doesn't apply. There's not really a, a strict zoning code. So Dallas is, is a lot more difficult than other parts of Texas uh, to do that. And it makes it harder to build higher density housing, which I think is a big priority at the legislator in Texas to try to get that changed because I mean, you can't even build ADUs, you know, the, the dwelling units on most properties in Dallas. So mm-hmm. that significantly hurts the, the supply problem we have in Dallas. Yeah. Can you define what that ADU is for our listeners? And I think, and I, I don't want to, I always get this wrong. I think it's accessory dwelling unit. It could be an additional, mm-hmm. the, the A could be a different acronym, but essentially what that means is being able to build another unit in the back, whether that's connected mm-hmm. to the property or isolated by itself. And usually it's isolated by itself where you could have somebody rent the, the back of that property. You can build additions. Um, those are tend to be, you know, a lot easier, but those accessory dwelling units allow for people to, you know, have an additional property they can rent out. So you can own a house and be able to rent the back house out, um, but it's building those things tend to be more difficult on certain lots. So that's a challenge in itself. But again, I think the larger problem is the fact of it's so hard to get zoning change to build more density. And so what you're left with is a wide expanse of single family homes and A, nobody can afford to buy them because of the undersupply. But B, when you have such high population growth, how do you solve that when you have a fixed amount of land? And a fixed and a, and a growing number of people wanting to live. It means that it's pure economics problem that yep. is not being solved because of the strictness of the zoning code and the lack of people willing to engage in the conversation of it's okay to change the neighborhood to allow for more density. It's not going to affect the nature of the neighborhood, the, the character of it. It's only going to help it by providing more affordability because you have an increased supply. Yeah, that's my soapbox, but. It's a, well, it's a great soapbox and and it's a fair soapbox, let's be honest, because a lot of, I I see this as well here locally, the, we have finally shifted our our thinking in the last, you know, five, 10 years to, to really figure out like, Hey, we need more multifamily developments local in downtown Boise. If we, we have to do rezoning, like it it just is what it is. We got to get more multifamily units. If you want people to live in the city and create that vibrant city feel and Dallas is probably the same way. Um, but I was talking, go ahead. I was going to say is it's funny because you actually have Dallas as one of the, if not the most in the, as far as the entire country, adding the most multifamily housing, across the country, <clears throat> but it's all become, it's all on the outskirts. It's in these other parts of the Metroplex, these other cities uh, that are growing, especially in the North. You're seeing just, you know, large communities, single family and apartments being built, 
but the city of Dallas itself is actually shrinking because of the lack of, of a development. So, um, you know, you have people moving out to the, to the way north or way west, east, et cetera, but it's the city of Dallas as a whole is that's where the problem is. Mm-hmm. Well, and then when you do that, you also get more traffic going into the city and it causes more congestion. Exactly right. You, you know it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting situation. I mean, one of the things I was talking with the new developer, new developer, he has a deal um, about I don't know thirty minutes west of me, and twenty-seven units new development. And when he went to the city council, it was one meeting. All of the right people were from different boards. Were all in one meeting. They could all talk, provide their input. The developer had a chance to get on his soapbox, present his case. And with one meeting, it was essentially green lit. Whereas in a county, um, a couple over, you know, the he has to go to ten different board meetings and do the same thing. So it, that was really surprising to me. I mean, two counties away, it was um, completely different ways of operating from a city yeah. level. That, that's that's frustrating, and I think we we definitely empathize with that struggle. You'll have, you know, it's city by city, right? Some cities, they want development. Other cities, they want to stay small. Uh, you you kind of have to just pick your battles. And sometimes it's unfortunate because you have certain cities that are like that, but they're located in such great locations, right close to major, um, you know, highways or ports or whatever, what have you. And it is frustrating, right? When there's so much opportunity to solve these problems, but people just don't see, they see their, their town changing and they don't like it, even though it's going to have a net social benefit to them and others. Mm-hmm. It's strange. It's almost like you have to start with uh, the why every time. Like, why, Jordan, are you, why do you want to change the way we currently do things? That's right. And you, you, you got to meet them where they're at to start. That's, and it, it's slow progress, unfortunately. That's, that's always the, I think, as, as you know, with development, it's just, it's a long game. And you got you to play the game. Yeah, you do have to play the game, um, play the grind. But that's where I think where you you talking about social impact before. It's a tough grind and very few people are willing to put that much risk and put that much grind into it to really build out um, the things that we need at the community level. I mean, especially it's such a need, especially since you see since the Great Recession, so many people left the industry from contractors all the, at every level um, of the game. And now we have a decreasing amount of supply of those contractors in the business and less people are willing to go into it because they got, you know, they got pushed yeah. out of the market and they yeah. can't, they don't want to get back in, which is fair. Yeah, no, they got, they got burned and, and now you're seeing <clears throat> the lack of, of uh, initial you know, people coming into the pipeline, which makes it more difficult to do things. So, um, yeah, definitely understand that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got new people coming in. Maybe they don't even know how to develop. I was in the market to buy it. Seriously, dude, it was wild. I don't know how this didn't get corrected, but I was looking at some new development a few years ago and the walls weren't even straight and the doors wouldn't even shut and it was for sale. It was crazy. Yeah, there was no quality control. That is rough. Yeah, I mean, that you want to you want to get into a you know you used to think that you know some of these operating companies it doesn't make sense to do them, but 
the more I hear about stories like that, the more I'm like, man, starting a construction company actually may be not the worst idea, right? If the, because of the lack of, of competent ones that you see. And the same thing applies to property management. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you, you used to be surprised how, how many people can just go up and, and start a construction company or a property management company without any, any major expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes you rethink, you know, bringing a lot of things in house. Yeah. Which I think is definitely something that we're, we're working on here at uh, web city. Mm-hmm. So do you guys have in-house operations or is that in the few, in the plans? Yeah, so we actually have in-house property management at this time. Uh, we got about seven or actually say eight full-time employees and another five or six part-time. Uh, we manage a total of around 500 units, single-family rentals, some small multifamily that we mentioned earlier, and then um, our, our mortgage notes that we also service and, and manage. So uh, everybody has does their part. We're more departmental structure, which means that we have different departments that do major functions. So sometimes you have properties, you have one person who's doing collections, leasing, all of that by themselves. Because we're scattered site, single family and small multifamily, it makes more sense for us to have one person doing, you know, leasing and sales, another person doing uh, collections and accounting, data entry work, and then another person doing work orders, turnovers, rehabs, things of that nature. So that's how we operate. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's actually where we're able to implement the social impact side. So I think this is where people get lost in the fact of how in-house can not only make you a better as far as your returns, but it also allows you to have more impact in that because we control each function and we have a, a very you know strong hold on each op- part of the operation, obviously we are being way more careful and proactive versus a third-party manager would be for our portfolio, right? So we're on top of things all the time. But also because of that, because we're so ingrained in the community, we know the nonprofits, we know the organizations that are providing resources and we know our tenants and what problems they're facing so we can be proactive in connecting those resources to our tenants. And what does that mm-hmm. do? That increases retention. So it yes. all comes together in that you increase impact, but you're also increasing the bottom line and the returns because you've been intentional in how you've set up your property management processes and your goals. So um, I think it's important to note that because sometimes people think impact doesn't equal good returns, but it actually can can increase them more. And I think that's why we, we value that being in house versus using a third party. Yeah, Jordan, I love that you touched on that. I think so many people think that those two things are mutually exclusive. Yeah, and they're and they're not. And I think on the construction part of part of it, like you asked, uh, as far as in house, that is it's it's kind of a hybrid. We have in house subcontractors who do a lot of the rehabs, new house builds, uh, but we don't have a construction company per se that we could go out and do other people's jobs. So. Same thing with property management. Everything's just in-house. We don't do any third-party stuff. Um, but we are looking, I think, long-term at potentially doing both third-party construction and property management. It just has to be something where we, we very, um, we're very choosy when it comes to who we want to work with, right? Because I know, and you know, too, just as you know, working with tenants is hard, so it is working with owners <laughs> in the same way. Yeah. Right? Uh, so we definitely want to build out our portfolio first and then look at the potential to, to expand. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a good approach. And Jordan, if you don't mind, I would love to touch on, you know, how you're improving or adding value for your tenants 
and your company at the same time. You know, when you think about these nonprofits that you're a part of, like what, what's an example of how you're partnering with a local nonprofit, connecting them with your tenants um, to provide, you know, stability or education or what are, can you provide a few examples for us? Yeah, for sure. I think the, the first initial one, and this was really big, obviously during the COVID period, and when people were kind of struggling and, you know, we were, we were, you know, nervous as well, right? Because our tenants going to pay if they don't have their jobs, what's going to happen. Um, but we actually, we had before that we'd already started a food distribution program. And so we worked with the local nonprofit, the North Texas food bank, and we signed up to become a verified distribution partner. Now get this. So we can serve a hundred families every month that we offer full boxes of groceries and we get the food completely free because it's funded by the North Texas Food Bank. And they just need more partners like us to actually distribute it to the people in need because that's where they're lacking. So they lack the ability to go out there and distribute to everybody in need. But we have an access to a full list of tenants who potentially may need food assistance. And even if they don't need it, it can be helpful for, for them to kind of cut some costs down for them, right? Mm-hmm. Especially you know, with inflation, with COVID, losing their jobs. So we, we multiplied from 100 to 200 during that COVID period. And even now, every month, we still serve 100 families with groceries uh, because of that connection that we had. And like I said, it doesn't cost us. The only thing it costs us is going out there and you know the logistics of mm-hmm. distributing it, but um, which is very minimal. And it also yeah. involves the, the whole company, right? Because we can go out there and volunteer together you know, build these connections, meet our tenants, meet the community. It's open to both, you know, tenants and the community members. So uh, it's been a great success. I think that's a perfect example of where you are actively helping somebody gain access to something they wouldn't have had while also, you know, it's, you're improving yourself as a company and you're improving your bottom line because it's not going to cost you anything, but it increases the tenant satisfaction and their, their view of you. I love that. That's such a cool program. And you're solving that need. You're essentially a distributor at that point, but at a much needed service and you have access directly to the people the nonprofit is trying to help. Exactly right. And I think something that we've made a goal of too is, you know, what is the systemic issues that our tenants face? So for our instance, we have a a big uh, demographic of Hispanic immigrant uh, tenants. Mm-hmm. So we will survey them and look at what are the actual issues they're facing and then look for nonprofits in the community that are solving those systemically. So if that problem is access to mentorship for their business, right? A lot of immigrants own businesses that they want to grow. We've actually started a, a immigrant business incubation program to help immigrant businesses grow their businesses. So cool. it's a perfect intersection of, we are investing in people's ability to grow their businesses and this will systemically allow them to, to grow their, their family's wealth, to increase their economic mobility. And it will also increase the number of thriving businesses in our zip codes, which naturally improve the neighborhood. So the, the more you talk about it, the more you start to see the synergies with everything, with the neighborhood, the community, the tenants themselves, and then you as a company growing because that's all growing up. So, the rising tide lifts all ships. I think exactly. that applies to this as well. Yeah. I, I love that. You guys are helping people. I mean, essentially, you're helping your father. If we were to like right. walk back 20 years ago, right? 
Like he's building all of these businesses and he probably use, could have used a few, a few helping hands along the way. And you're basically now building that for other people. You see the vision, man. I'm glad you see it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really cool, Jordan. And you don't see a lot of people, um, doing the, the kinds of things that you're doing. Um, and I think it's so needed, especially in parts of Dallas where there's, you know, it's difficult to zone. There's the lack of mix that you're, you were talking about and just very similar to a lot of other parts of the country were systemically under supplied when it comes to housing. Under, under supplied and underserved, right? You think about infrastructure, you think about food deserts. There's so many factors that come into play in these areas that um, there's ways to, to work against those if, if you just are intentional about looking for solutions. And uh, again, I think it doesn't cost you a ton extra. You know what I mean? The, the, the ROI is, is uh, extremely high on these activities. And I think people kind of get lost in the idea of, well, I don't have the money to donate you know, $100,000 to the nonprofits in my market where my, my tenants are. It just, it just doesn't make sense for me to do that. Well, you can become a, a, a distribution partner for a food bank for free. And yeah. that's not costing you anything, but what it does is, is that it, it does so much more than what you're, what you're paying. That's such a cool strategy. Well, I'm glad that's you great. see it, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, d- definitely see it. And I mean, I see my buddy runs a couple of nonprofits here. He's done such huge work and he has so many connections and he's been doing, um, building multifamily as well. Um, light tech, which is low income housing. Um, he's been doing that for oh, years man, and still, so Oh, it's tough. so tough. Wow. Yeah. He's been doing that for 20, 30 years now. And you know how they structure those deals financially. It's, it's very difficult to make those deals pencil. And, and the ones where you have to be competitive on the 9% light tech deals, which you don't have to go into, but the, those deals you have to, you have to be competing and showing your impact more than others. That's, so that's not easy. I'm sure he's he's been doing it for 30 years. I mean, he he's got to be a, a veteran at this point, and and he's got to gone through yep. a lot of scars, I'm sure as well. Yep, a lot of scars, but also a lot of impact. That's right. That's amazing. Yeah, it's good stuff. Well, I have a couple other questions, but I mean, I was thinking about we we we've gone over a few best practices and strategies you're implementing, and I I love the strategies that you're thinking. Really focus through the lens of improving the tenants and the communities around you for the long-term vision. You're doing that in, I don't know, four or five different ways, which I, I love to see. Um, and then when I'd love to t- get your thought process around managing risk. Like the strategies that we talked about do manage risk, but maybe if you could talk about, you know, what you're seeing from development costs, interest rates, um, how are you looking at deals a little bit different in this nuanced economic situation that we're in? And then maybe dive a little deep, deeper into Dallas. Yeah. And of course we've looked at, we look at both development opportunities um, and multifamily value add, single family all across the board. So we can, because we look at a variety of different types in residential real estate, we can kind of get a feel for some of the major issues and, you know, they're all very similar to what I'm sure a lot of people are seeing out there. Dallas, as well as, I mean, Houston's way worse, but insurance has just skyrocketed um, to an unbelievable mm. point, you know, 30 to 40% increases year over year. Wow. This past year. And, you know, you look at it and if you may remember, there was a, a big freeze in 2021 that impacted 50 of our properties 
where we had major work orders for plumbing issues because uh, the freeze and the lack of power, right? So when that happened mm-hmm. and the grid failed and no one had power and it was, you know, 10 degrees and snowing outside, pipes were bursting, there was major flood damages, mm-hmm. hail damage is also a, a very common thing. There's a lot of storms, tornadoes. So there's, there's a lot of things going on in Texas and Houston obviously has a way worse than Dallas even, but across the board, you're seeing a 30 to 40% increase in insurance premiums. So if you're not updating your underwriting very regularly, that's that's going to be a problem for you. Um, and underwriting a increase that is that is you know more conservative. So if you're going in there and underwriting two percent increases on your insurances and taxes, then you're going to be out of luck in in a year from now when your insurance premium comes back and it's thirty percent more than last year. So we are being very conservative on the insurance side. Of course, taxes has always been a problem in Texas, being that we don't have a state income tax, so we have to make up for it in the property tax realm. So underwriting ah. for that uh, major increases over the entire hold period and not just over the, the first year owning it is important. Uh, and then on development cost, I mean, it has been, I don't know how people are doing some projects. It's the cost to build, especially in, you know, think about you building a, a product in, in a not a luxury area and not a luxury type product, a like garden style in a mm-hmm. you know, lower to middle class area, it's really difficult because your your basis, even without the land cost uh, to build, is still just uh, you know it's it's to a point where I don't know how you're making it make sense. And of course, that comes into play with the cost of capital as well as making it much more difficult. So I think with development, we're just kind of a uh, you know holding our hands behind our back and and we we look at deals, but. You just you can't you can't make it happen if if the numbers don't work and so you know you're being patient um, you're waiting to see what others are doing I think for us too we've definitely made it a point to find mentors in the space when in, when times are so volatile as as they are now when it comes to um, you know the, the interest rates the cost to build labor problems so we're we're relying a lot on on constant feedback with them to see how they're reacting to this volatility. And so I had a, a gentleman who's way more experienced. He's actually in the light tech space as well, has about 30 years of experience. Uh, and what he said is that, you know, he's not doing anything right now. He is, he is totally waiting. Mm. But what he is doing is tying up sites. So he's tying up sites in good locations, and then he's just sitting on them. So it's a, I think it's a different strategy where if you're looking at a good location where you're confident you can get the zoning right and you get the land at a good basis, that's where you can pounce. So we're looking at land with that lens and being very particular because we have to find it at a great basis and in a great location uh, because those things can potentially mitigate some of the risk from the interest rates and the cost to build. Now the interest mm-hmm. rates normalize in, in a year or two, then these deals start to become, you know, they, they pencil a little better. Right. Uh, but right now I think a lot of people just holding their hands behind their back and, and waiting for, for things to normalize a bit. Um, and then besides that, I, I would say, you know, how we always mitigate risk is is just when, when it comes to underwriting as a principle, it's making sure each of those numbers on your pro forma are backed up by third-party data that's been updated on a highly recent basis. So never being complacent in, in any of your, your metrics. Those are so many good points, Jordan. Insurance, really good point on insurance because people, it's kind of like a blip. We have... Sh- feel like we have short-term memory loss. So we remember what happened in Dallas and all of Texas, but how does that go forward 
in two, three, four years, what does that do to insurance premiums? Um, that's a really good point. Making sure your underwriting is capturing those increases year over year. Significant increases definitely do more than the the standard 2% in some of those situations. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, and I love your, your points on being patient, finding mentors, tying up good locations and just kind of sitting on it, you know, paying, paying the taxes on the raw land, but you know, when the time comes, when the cost to build is a little bit lower, it get better interest rates, like that's going to be a great location and then you can execute. Yeah. I think for anybody out there that's, and, and we're in the same boat, that's starting newly into development where, you know, coming from the value add side, we're still new. We've made it a point to, you know, inquire with our mentors about doing a deal with them. And then if we get a site, we, we make sure that we check in with them to see if there's interest there. Because I think pursuing a JV with a more experienced developer uh, is the most important thing you can do when you're starting out. Because getting that experience, or at least hiring a, a very experienced development consultant, that is just a must-have when, when doing your first project. And so we, we have a couple things in the pipeline now because of those relationships with mentors. Now, nothing I don't want to say it's anything set in stone, but we certainly are seeing where we have a bigger pipeline because we've been more intentional in our land acquisition strategy being mm. to tie it up with a experienced partner. Yeah, it's really, really smart. As far as land acquisition goes, have you ever read uh, dirt cheap? I think is the book. I haven't. Maybe I need to. Yeah, I think that's the book. Um, dirt rich. Dirt rich is the dirt book. Rich. Okay. I'll have to look at that. Yeah, very interesting strategy there. And I have uh, some connections. If you want to talk about land acquisitions, they're pretty good at what they do. Um, but very good points, Jordan. Appreciate that. And we'll come up on the last little segment of the show. What is the one thing you'd like to leave us with today? Yeah, I, I think, you know, kind of a summary of what I've continued to talk about is that you can make good returns while doing good. You just have to be intentional and creative and be in the community. That's, I would say that's the most important thing is when you know your community and you have intentions of doing good, oftentimes it pays back itself tenfold because of that intentionality. And because you, you know what issues are, are the, the communities you know, facing, you know, who's making those solutions and you're just acting as a conduit with your portfolio. And by doing that, you know, you, you get, you increase retention, you increase satisfaction in, among your tenants you improve the morale of your own company because of they see the impact. Um, and so I think, you know, let's, let's all kind of take that mindset into anything we, that we do is that we can be intentional to look for ways to have impact without it having to cost us monetarily. Um, and, and so I think that's just a mindset I would encourage anybody to take a look at in their own community. I love that, Jordan. Make good by doing good for your community. That's right. That's cool. All right, Jordan, well, where can we get a hold of you? Yeah, so our company, Web City Properties, our website for the investor side is www.webcityequity. That's W E B C I T Y equity.com. And then I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Jordan De Silva One. So feel free to follow me. I always like to uh, make good content. And then if you go to our website, uh, you can subscribe to our newsletter. We send out monthly newsletters kind of going over the behind the scenes of web city, our impact strategy, new deals. Uh, and so we have a newsletter coming out next week, actually our first one. So would love if you subscribe mm -hmm. and uh, kind of getting ourselves out there and wanting to share all the great work we're doing. And I uh, would love to schedule a call with anybody interested in investing as well. 
Sounds great. Well, Jordan, thanks for coming on and some value, some unique value add um, strategies that you don't hear a lot of people doing in the multifamily space. So appreciate your perspective today. Well, I appreciate you, Casey. Thanks for having me on. It was great to talk to you and, and look forward to connecting soon again. Absolutely. All right, Jordan, have a good one. And for all the listeners, we'll talk later. See ya. Hello, hello, valued listener. Casey Silveria here, hoping you gain some golden nuggets from today's episode. Remember, we're all ears for your thoughts, be it feedback, fresh topics, or intriguing guests you'd love to hear from. Don't hesitate to slide into my DMs on Instagram. Find me at Cashflow Farmer. Peek into my bio and gain access to our complimentary passive investor training course and our investor waitlist. That's your gateway to current and future investment opportunities. And quick heads up, this episode is meant for info fix only, not to replace expert counsel. Be sure to check in with your CPAs and lawyers before diving into any investments we discuss. Stay savvy, folks. See you later.